Well, it's good to be with you this morning. It is a real privilege, and it's an honor for me. Now, I usually attend the first service, so I'm treading on foreign soil this morning, and I'll try to tread lightly as I can. Not, not, not too lightly, though. Well, let me pray for us this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom all the blessings of heaven and earth are found. And we always and only come through Christ and through Him alone. Father, when Jesus ascended into heaven, You promised, He promised, that He would send the Holy Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who would guide us into all truth. And Lord, You have kept this promise for 2,000 years. Would You keep this promise again this morning for us? It's not enough for us to walk away and know something more about a Bible text. Lord, as Mark prayed earlier, we need to be changed as we see who you are more clearly. Would you do that for us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, verse 1. Follow along with me. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, it says Abram, and he gets named Abraham later. God gives him a better name. He names him Abraham. So we can interchange these this morning. Abram, Abraham. He says to Abram in a vision, Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He, that is God, took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring or descendants be. Now Abraham in this story is really struggling. And just to give you a little backlog, God has called him out of his hometown He's called him into a foreign country, and he's wandering around in this foreign land, and God's promised to give it to him. He's given him some big promises. He's promised him land. He's promised him many descendants, and he's promised that ultimately, somehow, all the nations of the whole earth will be blessed through his descendants. And Abraham is getting older, and he doesn't have kids And he's struggling with these promises. Basically, he's saying, Lord, I don't know how it works up there in heaven, but just to remind you, down here on earth, if a man is fixing to have a bunch of descendants, he's got to have a few kids. Even one would be nice. Because right now, I'm working with a big donut. Zero. 
Not to talk back, but that's how it works down here on earth. And God, of course, comes back to him and says, I'm not backing off of my promises. And he doubles down on it. He says, no, it's going to be like I said, Abraham. My promises are all going to come true. And it's not figurative language. I mean, I'm going to give you kids. You may be old, but I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do it well. Now, we know how this story ends, don't we? I mean, we know the story. God keeps all his promises to Abraham. Every single one fully keeps every promise. And we know this. Why? Because we have a song. And if you grew up in the church, you know this song. And if you didn't, but you've ever worked with kids in children's church or Sunday school, you know this song. And I'm not going to sing it for you because you don't need that on a Sunday morning. But... I'll, I'll give you the words, and you know them, a lot of you. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And then all chaos just breaks out. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot. Gets crazy. Kids love this song. It's like the Christian version of the hokey pokey. And when everybody's... All done, you're supposed to turn around, sit down, and any self-respecting kid never sits down. He flops on the ground like a dead fish. Furniture goes flying everywhere. It's chaos. It's wonderful. When, when we have family worship at my house, we gather around the table, we have dinner, and then we have worship together. My kids, who are young, they always ask me, Dad, can we sing Father Abraham tonight? And every single time, no matter what, I say no. And you know why. Because if I said yes, it would be 20 minutes before I got them all back around the table in their right minds and we could proceed. Well, let's sing Zacchaeus was a wee little man. That's safe. But we know. We know how this works out. But Abraham doesn't know. Abraham is living this in real time. He doesn't have the rest of the scripture to find out, oh, well, God did keep all His promises. He's living this in real time, and it's difficult. He's struggling. And then Moses records the next verse, our text for this morning. Genesis 15, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So you can translate that. He accounted it to him. He reckoned it to him. He imputed it to him. For righteousness. And it's kind of a strange verse. You're reading through this story about Abraham. And you, you, you understand he's struggling. God's answering. And then all of a sudden Moses just has this little verse. Abraham believed the Lord. Okay, he believed in the promises. And he credited it or reckoned it to him as righteousness. And we read that and we say, well, that's a good thing. Having righteousness reckoned to you, whatever that means. That must be a good thing. Now, we know one thing this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Abraham stopped sinning because in the very next chapter, after all of this, these wonderful promises and confirming the promises, making this wonderful covenant with Abraham, Abraham blows it and he just sins big time. He takes matters into his own hands and that's a whole other part of the story. My hope this morning is that you would see with me that you would see that Moses recorded this verse 
not just so you can know something more about Abraham, but he recorded this for you today, FAC. He recorded it for me, too. It's personal. It should be personal. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verses 20 through 25. Paul's masterpiece argument for the gospel, his letter to the church in Rome. I hope you're familiar with this book. And if not, that's okay too. But basically in Romans, just to give you a little background, Paul is writing to the church at Rome and he is arguing for the gospel like a good lawyer. I mean, he is making a watertight case for this gospel that he's preaching. And at the centerpiece, as the centerpiece, the center of this gospel is this thing that he calls justification by faith. And we'll get to what that is in a minute. But Paul is arguing, and as he's arguing, he keeps talking about Abraham. All these stories about Abraham, they're, they're in his mind as he's writing this letter to the Romans. And ultimately, he's writing this letter to us by God's Holy Spirit. Follow with me. Yet he, Abraham, did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Now listen, listen, FAC. The words it was credited to him, and he's quoting our verse from Genesis, were written not for him alone, but also for us. Paul says, what I'm talking about Abraham, what I'm saying about Abraham here, this isn't so you can know something nice about Abraham. This is directly for you, and it's directly for us. This morning, he says, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And he's writing this letter about justification. He calls it justification by faith. And there's several chapters previous. I mean, he's really starts at the beginning and he's arguing his way through this. Now, this word, justification, as we find it here in Romans, we find it uh, the same way in Galatians. It's a forensic term. And forensic doesn't mean it has anything to do with the show CSI or anything like that. Forensic means having to do with the court. So it's a courtroom term. And by using this term, the way he uses it, Paul is placing his gospel, he's placing this message in the courtroom of the just judge. Now, this isn't just any courtroom. This is his courtroom. His courtroom alone. And in order to understand what is Paul talking about, justification by faith, and it's like Abraham believed in God, what does that mean? In order to understand that, the best way to understand that is to imagine God's courtroom with me. God is the just judge, and he sits on his seat of judgment. And we know this. We know that God is the just judge. And we know that God will judge everyone. Paul's saying, hey, everyone has a court date. And left to ourselves, it's, it's not a good situation. 
And he really hammers this. He says, there's nobody righteous, not one. All have failed in the courtroom of God. Nobody has a good excuse. Nobody has a good, good defense. Nobody. Gentile, Jew, you have the law, you don't have the law. You know, you like Chinese, you like Italian. Whatever your deal is in life, you've all got it coming. Because you're a bunch of sinners, and he says this to us this morning, and he, most particularly about me, you're all a bunch of sinners. You're not holy, and you stand before this just judge. Now, we forget who the just judge really is. The just judge is the same God that met with Moses on the mountain. Do you remember this? He's going to meet with Moses on the mountain. And so what does he do? He gets ready. And God comes to him and he says, Moses, before we go up there, I have some things I need to tell you, just me and you. Before we go up there, you need to cordon off, you need to barricade off the bottom of this mountain. And here's the reason why, Moses. Because if one of those sinful Israelites, I know they're my people, but if one of them even steps on the mountain while we're up there talking, my holiness... My absolute perfection and holiness, my wrath will be kindled against those sinners and I'll have to interrupt our conversation and go down there and start killing them. Really. And it's not because I'm mean, Moses. It's because I'm holy. I am pure. I am perfect in all righteousness and I can't countenance sin in my courtroom. That's the just judge. And he hasn't changed. Now, the second person you need to become familiar with in this courtroom scene is you. And it's me, the sinner. And we're born, and from the time we're born, our whole lives, we spend a lot of time sinning. And every time we do, it's an offense to the just judge. And we have a court date. It's not a pleasant picture. One theologian put this really well. He said, look, he said, if you want to come to terms with how sinful you really are, how sinful I really am, what is the, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus told us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And this theologian said, if that's the greatest commandment, then we're all in a bunch of trouble. Because we haven't kept that commandment for five minutes our entire lives. So we have the just judge. We have us. We're the sinners. You're sitting in the docket, the area where the accused sits. Now, the glorious gospel... And glorious is the only word that describes this. It shouldn't just be a word for Mark and Rob Cryer. You should use this word. It is glorious. The glorious gospel is that the instant a sinner like you and me puts our faith in Christ. And what that means is we come to God through Christ and we say, I have no defense, no excuse whatsoever. And we say this to the just judge. I have no, you, you got me. My rap sheet is 10 miles long. We say, but would you be gracious to me, not because I'm good enough, but because your son is good enough and because he died on the cross. 
I believe that. I don't have anything to offer you, but would you be gracious to me? Now, the instant a sinner comes in faith to the just judge, the most amazing thing happens. This is what happens. And it really happens. It doesn't happen later. It happens while you're a sinner. While we're sinners, God takes his gavel and he pounds it on the desk, the judgment seat, and he says, and I'll use myself as an example, he says, I hereby declare by this most holy and prestigious court, my court, that Justin Beam is righteous in my sight for all time, henceforth and forevermore. It's amazing. It's glorious. And he says this by an irrevocable decree. Justin, yeah, I remember him. He's been declared righteous, perfectly fit for heaven, and entitled to all the rights and privileges of someone who has a perfect record in my court. Now, the just judge does this, which is amazing in itself. He does this without compromising his justice one little bit. He doesn't compromise. He never will. He can't take some of our sin and sweep it under the carpet and say, oh, I like him. We'll, we'll let that go. He remains perfectly holy in his judgment. And the instant I put faith in Christ, something wonderful happens. All my sin goes to Christ at the cross. All of it. And the just judge, in his hot, righteous fury, pours out, Mark alluded to this earlier, pours out his holy wrath on Christ in my place. It's wonderful. Now, justification by faith is going a step further. We all know, if you've been coming to church any amount of time, we all know that Jesus died for our sins, don't we? I mean, we say it all the time, and we even take it for granted. But now, God says, through the Apostle Paul, there's a double switch that happens. It's not just Justin's sins to Christ at the cross. There's a double. Christ's perfect life, His perfect righteousness, is placed to my account. My, the judge says, my beloved son, who I am infinitely pleased with in his life and death and resurrection, that life, that perfection, that cleanness is now accounted to Justin. And Jesus walks into the courtroom and he stands in front of me. Me, I have no hope of appeasing this judge. And he just simply says, Father, Justin is mine. He put his faith in me. And the just judge declares this glorious truth. This is justification by faith. Now, there are some of you here this morning that simply need to remember this again. And I need it every day of my life. We all need the gospel preached to us over and over and over because we're sinners. We forget how good this is. Some of you, maybe you've been walking with the Lord a long time, and today you just need refreshed in this glorious gospel. Now, there's another group of you here this morning. 
And this is what you do when you hear about justification by faith. You are morbidly introspective people. And I know you because I'm one of you. You hear about justification by faith, and it's wonderful to you, but you go, I don't think it's me. I don't think I got the right faith. I don't think I'm believing the right stuff. And some days I feel like I have faith, and then other days I don't. And, and you dig around in your own sinful heart looking for this faith formula that you can never find. And you, you think about this. There was a time when I was in seminary, and, and honestly, I was doubting to the point where it was almost like everything was up for grabs. I mean, some days I felt like a Christian, and other days I really questioned whether I was or not. In hindsight, I know I was. But it was awful. There are some of you out here today, and this is what you do. You can't even take joy in this glorious, simple, wonderful truth of the gospel because you automatically get all introspective and you start worrying about your own faith. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said something in a sermon once. And he says it so much better than I ever could. He spoke this in a sermon over 150 years ago. And it's as true today as the day he said it. And it was true, it was as true the day he said it, as far back as you can go. I mean, it was true before he said it. But he said it so well. If you're that person, listen to this. Remember, sinner, hey, that's us. It is not your hold of Christ that saves you, it is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you, it is Christ. Listen. It is not even faith in Christ, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not to your hope, but to Christ, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. And if you do that, 10,000 devils can't throw you down. There is one thing which we all of us too much becloud in our preaching, though I believe we do it very unintentionally. Namely, the great truth that it is not prayer, it is not faith, it is not our doings, it is not our feelings upon which we must rest, but upon Christ and on Christ alone. We are prone to think that we're not in a right state, we don't feel enough, instead of remembering that our business is not with self, but with Christ. Never expect deliverance from self, from ministers, or from any means of any kind apart from Christ. If you are a morbidly introspective doubter, I, am, I stand in solidarity and I pity you because I know. Get your eyes off of yourselves and get them onto Him. He is glorious. Now, there's something else that some of you will do with this great doctrine of justification by faith. You will hear this, and you are shrewd. You are a shrewd person, and you understand what this actually means, and you go, that's a great deal. I will take it. I mean, what's a better deal than free, right? I mean, my sins to Christ, Christ's righteousness to me, that's just, I'll take it. I'm sold, I'll do the deal. 
And so some of us, and we've all done this at one point or another in our Christian faith, we take justification by faith, and we say, this is my hall pass, this is my ticket punching for heaven, and we stick it in our pocket, and then we go do whatever, we think we're going to go do whatever we want to do with the rest of our lives. And then when we're all done, and we stand before the just judge, we'll pull it out and say, hey, look, justification by faith, remember? You've got to let me in. And we've all tried this. Some of you out, out here today are doing that. Stop. It's pretty simple. God didn't give you this to be used for that purpose. The same Apostle Paul, the same Apostle Paul who gives us justification by faith, not just here, but in many places in the Scripture, He's very clear. He always tells you everything that you have in Christ. He tells you all the glories of it. Isn't it wonderful? And at some point, even in Romans, everywhere, he always says, now that you know all this wonderful stuff about Jesus and what he's done for you, I want you to walk like this. And he starts talking about, this is how you should be in your married life. And this is how you should be with your kids. And this is how you should go to work. And he starts saying all this stuff. And he does it very concisely in one particular place. Turn with me in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. This is justification by faith again. Hey, you can't do enough. You can't earn enough. You have nothing pure, nothing good to offer to God in His courtroom. Salvation, justification, it's just simply by believing in the promise of God. But He doesn't stop there. Then He says this, verse 10, For we are God's handiwork... Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul says, you know this. Now, walk in the light as he is in the light. And let me be very careful here. And in all the teaching of Scripture, in Paul and everywhere else, it's not do these good things which I prepared beforehand for you to do, so that in some way you can add to something, you can add something to what Christ already did. He's never saying that. And he's never saying, look, Jesus gets you started with justification by faith, but now you've got to take over, and it's if you don't do the good works, then you know you're lost and you've got to maintain this thing as it goes on. He's not saying that either. So let me be really clear. You cannot add anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection for sinners. It is a perfect work. And the moment you put your faith in Him, this declaration is said concerning you. Righteous in my courtroom for all eternity. But what God and what Paul is saying is this. When God brings you to salvation and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the very next thing He says about you, I can sum it up in one word. You know what He says? He says, This one is mine. All mine. 
There is no part of this justified sinner that is now not now totally mine. I don't just want the spiritual part so he can go to heaven later. I want everything and I've redeemed the whole thing right now. I don't just want his spiritual life. I want his physical body. I'll even raise that up at the last day. I want his marriage. It's mine. His family, mine. His money, mine. His time, his hobbies, the things he likes to do, the way he treats people, the way he works when he goes to his job. It's all mine. Now, some of us hear this and we go, wow, well, this sounds like he's crawfishing on the deal. I mean, he gives us free salvation in Christ. Is he now pulling that back and saying, well, hey, you've got to earn it or else it doesn't count? No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying, you are now mine, my precious possession. And what an effect God is doing. It's an added blessing on the justification. He's saying, look, I love you too much to save you for later. Later is too long. I want to save you right now. And I want to give you a purpose in this life right now. Right now. See, God saves us and He says, it's not good enough for my kids to chase idols. They're not allowed to do this because it's bad for them. And in effect, God gives us our lives back and He says, okay, Justin, you're justified by faith, but now here's your whole life back. You don't have to, in vanity, chase after all these idols that you used to chase. I'll give you a life that's actually worth living right now. And it will count for eternity. And it's not all pie-in-the-sky, extra-spiritual stuff. It's, hey... You can relate to your wife, your husband, in a way that is glorifying to me and that actually counts for eternity. And you can raise your kids in a way that counts for eternity. You can go to work and work. And Paul says later, even if you're a slave and your master is a real jerk, you can go and work at your job for me and I'm keeping track and it actually counts for eternity. Not that any of this stuff is good enough to clean you before a holy God. It's a blessing to serve Him. He gives us our lives back. And we've all done this at one point or another. But if you're here this morning and you're trying to use this precious gospel as a license to chase idols, stop it. And we make idols... John Calvin put this well. He summed this up really well. He said, look... He said, the human heart is an idol factory. I mean, we pump these things out like they're coming off an assembly line. And we don't carve stuff out of wood. You know, we're too sophisticated for that. We don't set stuff up in our living room and bow down and worship it. I hope not, anyway. And if you do that, come see me after the service. We've got to have a big talk. But we're more conniving in the way we make idols. We take sex. We take... Money and the things it can buy, our jobs, our status. We take people in our lives and we grab a hold of them and we start to try to wring more pleasure and fulfillment out of them than they were ever designed to give us.
Mark alluded to this when he was preaching on, on marriage. You can't do that to your wife. Your wife's become an idol. You can't do this with your husband. You can't do this with your job. Lastly, there are some of you here this morning, and you've never put your faith in Christ. And all I can do is stand up here and plead with you to come to Him. You will not regret it. But let me be very bluntly honest with you. If you don't believe this, I can't make you. And I can wave my arms around and talk till I'm blue in the face. I can't do this for you. All I can do and all I will do is plead with you, come to Christ by faith. And all that means is that you come before a holy God and you say, God, my rap sheet is 10 miles long. I don't have a single excuse. And if I stand by myself in your courtroom, you're going to throw me into hell and I'm going to deserve it. But would you be gracious to me, a sinner, not because I'm good enough, but because Christ was good enough for sinners? Would you be gracious to me, not because I'm good enough, but because Jesus bore the wrath on the cross for sinners? And it's as simple as that. In closing today, uh, I want to just say to you that as a... You remember our verse we started with? Abraham believed God and he reckoned it to him for righteousness. As Abraham believed in the promises of God, if you've put your faith in Christ, you've believed in the promises of God as they are found in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And just like Abraham, God has credited it or reckoned it to your account as perfect righteousness. Isn't God good?